the revelation of law in Scripture, considered with respect both to its own nature and to its relative place in successive dispensations. By Patrick Fairbairn Lecture 4 The Law in Its Form and Substance Its More Essential Characteristics and the relation of one part of its contents to another. In this particular part of our inquiry, there is much that might be taken for granted as familiarly known and generally admitted, were it not that much also is often ignored or grievously misrepresented, and that, for a correct view of the whole, not a little depends on a proper understanding of the spirit as well as formal contents of the law, of its historical setting, and the right adjustment of its several parts. If, in these respects, we can here present little more than an outline, it must still be such as shall embrace the more distinctive features of the subject and clear the ground for future statements and discussions. Number 1. We naturally look first to the Decalogue, the ten words, as they are usually termed in the Pentateuch, which stand prominently out in the Mosaic legislation, as being not only the first in order and in themselves a regularly constructed whole, but the part which is represented as having been spoken directly from heaven in the audience of all the people, amid the most striking indications of the divine presence and glory. The part, moreover, which was engraven by God on the mount, on two tablets of stone, the only part so engraven, and, in this enduring form, the sole contents of that sacred chest or ark which became the center of the whole of the religious institutions of Judaism, the symbolical basis of God's throne in Israel. Such varied marks of distinction, there can be no reasonable doubt, were intended to secure for this portion of the Sinaitic revelation the place of preeminent importance to render it emphatically the law to which subsequent enactments stood in a dependent or auxiliary relation. First, and in considering it, there is first to be noted the aspect in which the great lawgiver here represents himself to his people. I am Jehovah thy God, who have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The words are merely a resumption of what had been shortly before and somewhat more fully declared in the first message delivered from Sinai. They give, in a compendious form, the gospel of the covenant of promise. Jehovah, the unchangeable and eternal, the great I Am. This alone, had it been all, was a lofty idea for men who had been so long enveloped in the murky atmosphere of idolatry. And if deeply impressed upon their hearts and made a pervading element in their religion and polity, would have nobly elevated the seed of Israel above all the nations then existing on the earth. But there is more a great deal than this in the personal announcement which introduces the ten fundamental precepts. It is that same glorious and unchangeable being coming near to Israel in the character of their redeeming God, and by the very title, 
with the incontestable fact on which it rested, pledging his faithful love and sufficiency for all future time to protect them from evil or bring them salvation. So that, in coming forth in such a character to declare the law that was henceforth to bind their consciences and regulate their procedure alike toward himself and toward one another, there was embodied the all-important and salutary principle that redemption carries in its bosom a conformity to the divine order, and that only when the soul responds to the righteousness of heaven is the work of deliverance complete. The view now given received important confirmation in the course of the historical transactions which immediately ensued. The people who had heard with solemn awe the voice which spake to them from Sinai and undertook to observe and do what was commanded soon showed how far they were from having imbibed the spirit of the revelation made to them, how far especially from having attained to right thoughts of God, by turning back in their hearts to Egypt, and during the temporary absence of Moses on the mount, prevailing upon Aaron to make a golden calf as the object of their worship. The sensual orgies of this false worship were suddenly arrested by the reappearance of Moses upon the scene, while Moses himself, in the grief and indignation of the moment, cast from him the two tables of the law and broke them at the foot of the mount, an expressive emblem of that moral breach which the sin of the people had made between them and God. The breach, however, was again healed and the covenant re-established, but before the fundamental words of the covenant were written afresh on tables of stone— The Lord gave to Moses, and through him to the people, a further revelation of his name, that the broken relationship might be renewed under clearer convictions of the gracious and loving nature of him whose yoke of service it called them to bear. Even Moses betrayed his need of some additional insight in this respect by requesting that God would show him his glory— though, as may seem from the response made to it, he appears to have had too much in his eyes some external form of manifestation. Waving, however, what may have been partial or defective in the request, at least no farther meeting it than by presenting to the view of Moses what perhaps we may call a glimpse of the incarnation in a cleft of the rock, the Lord did reveal his more essential glory— revealed it by such a proclamation of his name as disclosed all his goodness. The Lord, it is said, passed by before Moses and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. This emphatic proclamation of the divine name or description of the character in which God wished to be known by his people is in principle the same with that which heads the ten words, but it is of greater compass and remarkable chiefly for the copious and prominent exhibition it gives of the gracious, tender, and benignant character of God 
as the Redeemer of Israel, that they might know how thoroughly they could trust in his goodness and what ample encouragement they had to serve him. It intimates, indeed, that justice could not forego its claims, that obstinate transgressors should meet their desert, but gives this only the subordinate and secondary place, while grace occupies the foreground. Was this, we ask, to act like one who was more anxious to inspire terror than win affection from men? Did it seem as if he would have his revelation of law associated in their minds with the demands of a rigid service, such as only an imperious sense of duty or a dread of consequences might constrain them to render? Assuredly not. And we know that the words of the memorial name, which he so closely linked with the restored tables of the law, did take an abiding hold of the more earnest and thoughtful spirits of the nation, and ever and anon, amid the seasons of greatest darkness and despondency, came up with a joyous and reassuring effect into their hearts. So that... Whatever of awful grandeur and majesty attended the revelation of the law from Sinai, as uttered amid thrilling sounds and sights that flashed amazement on the eyes of the beholders, it still had its foundation in love, and came from God expressly in the character of their most gracious and faithful Redeemer, as well as their righteous Lord. Second, yet... And here is a second point to be noted. It did not the less on that account assume, being a revelation of law and form as well as substance, it could not but assume a predominantly stringent and imperative character. The humane and loving spirit in which it opens is not indeed absent from the body of its enactments, though for the most part formally disguised, but even in form it reappears more than once, especially in the assurance of mercy to the thousands who should love God and keep his commandments, and the promise of long continuance on the land of rest and blessing associated respectively with the second and the fifth precepts of the law. But these are only, as it were, the relieving clauses of the code, reminiscences of the grace and loving-kindness which had been pledged by the lawgiver, and might be surely counted on by those who were willing to yield themselves to his service, the law itself, in every one of the obligations it imposes, takes, as we have said, the imperative form, Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. And this just because it is law and must leave no doubt that the course it prescribes is the one that ought to be taken, and must be taken, by everyone who is in a sound moral condition. This is the case equally whether the precepts run in the positive or in the negative form. For, as justly stated by a moralist formerly quoted, quote, since morality rests upon freedom of choice, and this again consists in the fact that, under several modes of action that are possible, a particular one is chosen through one's own independent exercise of will, every moral act is at the same time also a refraining from a contrary mode of action that might have been taken. The moral law is hence always double-sided. 
it is at once command and prohibition. Nor can it make any essential difference whether the law comes forth in the one or the other form. And as the moral life of man is a continuous one, he must every moment be fulfilling a divine law. A mere abstaining would be a disowning of the moral. End quote. No peculiar learning or profound reach of thought is required to understand this. It must commend itself to every intelligent and serious mind. For if in respect to those precepts which take the negative form of prohibitions, the mere omitting to do the thing forbidden were all that is enjoined, there would be nothing properly moral in the matter. The command might be fulfilled by the simple absence of moral action, by mere inactivity, which in the moral sphere is but another name for death. Hence it has ever been the maxim of all judicious and thoughtful commentators on the law of the two tables that when evil is forbidden, the opposite good is to be understood as enjoined. Just as, on the other side, when a duty is commanded, everything contrary to it is virtually forbidden. Thus, Calvin, after substantially affirming the principle now stated, referring to the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, repudiates the idea that it is to be regarded merely as an injunction to abstain from all injury or wish to inflict it. Quote, I hold, he says, that it means besides that we are to aid our neighbor's life by every means in our power. And he proves it thus, quote, God forbids us to injure or hurt a brother because he would have his life to be dear and precious to us. And therefore, when he so forbids, he at the same time demands all the offices of charity which can contribute to his preservation, end quote. So also Luther, who, under the same precept, considers all indeed forbidden that might lead to murder, but holds this also to be included that, quote, we must help our neighbor and assist him in all his bodily troubles, end quote. Higher than both, our Lord himself brings out the principle strongly in his exposition of that and of other precepts of the Decalogue in his Sermon on the Mount. As again also in reference to the prohibition regarding work on the Sabbath, when taken as an excuse for refusing to administer help to a brother's necessities by asking, Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Which plainly involves the principle that mere negatives in matters of moral obligation have the force of positives that to reject virtue is to choose vice, that not to do the good we can is to consent to the evil we allow. To let a life we might have saved perish is to be guilty of another's death. On this ground, which has its justification in the very nature of things, there can manifestly be no adequate knowledge of this revelation of law or a proper exhibition of its real nature and place in the divine economy, without perceiving its relation, as well in those who received as in him who gave it, to the great principles of love. Apart from this, it had been a body without a soul, a call to obedience without the slightest chance of a response. 
For aiming, as the law did, at securing a conformity in moral purpose and character between a redeeming God and a redeemed people, not one of its precepts could reach the desired fulfillment unless the love which had exhibited itself as the governing principle in the one should find in the other a corresponding love, which might be roused and guided into proper action. Hence, as if to make this unmistakably plain, no sooner had Moses given a rehearsal of the Decalogue in the book of Deuteronomy than he proclaimed aloud the memorable words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might which our Lord declared to be the first and great commandment, and he added another, which he pronounced the second and like to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The same also, which centuries before had issued from the lips of Moses. On these two commandments, he further declared, hang all the law and the prophets. The apostles also freely interchange the precept of love with the commandments of the Decalogue as mutually explanatory of each other. And thus, in part at least, may be explained the negative form of the Ten Commandments. They assume throughout the known existence of a positive, and that primarily in the moral nature of man, as the image, though marred, of the divine, without which, latent but living in the bosom, they had been incapable of awakening any response or creating the slightest sense of obligation. Yet not in that alone does the law assume the existence of a positive, but also in the revealed character of God, as recognized and exhibited in the law itself. There Israel, as the redeemed of Jehovah, had ever before them the perfection of excellence, which they were bound to aim at, and for the sake of which, lest they should lose sight of it, or think little of the obligation, they had their path fenced and guarded by those prohibitions of law on the right hand and on the left. Still, the negative is doubtless in itself the lower form of command. And when so largely employed as it is in the Decalogue, it must be regarded as contemplating and striving to meet the strongest current of evil that runs in the human heart. This may not improperly be deemed the main reason, only not the exclusive one, since even in paradise a negative form was given to the command which served as the peculiar test of love. Third, Viewing the law thus, as essentially the law of love, which it seeks to guard and protect, as well as to evoke and direct, let us glance briefly at the details, that we may see how entirely these accord, alike in their nature and their orderly arrangement, with the general idea and provide for its proper exemplification. As love has unspeakably its grandest object in God, so precedence is justly given to what directly concerns him, implying also that religion is the basis of morality, that the right adjustment of men's relation to God tends to ensure the proper maintenance of their relations one to another. God, therefore, must hold the supreme place in their regard, must receive the homage of their love and obedience, and this in regard to his being, his worship, his name, and his day. He is the one living God, 
Therefore, no others must be set up in his presence. He alone must have the place of deity, the first. Spiritual in his own nature, his worship also must be spiritual. Therefore, no idle forms are to appear in his service, for none such can adequately represent him. They would but degrade men's notions concerning him, virtually change his truth into a lie. Second, his name is the expression of whatever is pure, holy, and good. Therefore, it must be lifted up to nothing that is vain, associated with nothing false, corrupt, wicked, or profane, but only with words and deeds which breathe its spirit and reflect its glory. Third, the day, too, which he has specially consecrated for himself, being the signature of his holiness on time and labor, the check he lays upon human activity as naturally tending to work only for self, his ever-recurring call and providence on men to work so as to be again perpetually entering into his rest, this day, therefore, must be kept apart from servile labor, withdrawn from the interests of the flesh and hallowed to God. Fourth, the next command may also be taken in the same connection. A step further in the same line, since earthly parents are in a peculiar sense God's representatives among men, those whom he invests a measure of his own authority, as standing for a time in his stead to those whom instrumentally they have brought into being, and whom they should train for his service and glory. These, therefore, must be honored with all dutiful and ready obedience, that the hearts of the fathers may in turn become the hearts of the children. This, however, touches on the second division of moral duty, that which concerns men's relations to each other, and according to the particular aspect in which it is contemplated, the fifth command may be assigned to the first or to the second table of the law. Scripture itself makes no formal division. Though it speaks frequently enough of two tables, it nowhere indicates where the one terminates and the other begins, purposely perhaps to teach us that the distinction is not to be very sharply drawn, and that the contents of the one gradually approximate and at last pass over into the other. Already in the fourth commandment, distinct reference is made to persons in the humbler ranks of life, and a kind consideration is required to be had of them, though still the primary aim and aspect of the command bore upon interests in which all were alike concerned. In like manner with the fifth, what it directly enjoins is certainly such love and regard as is due from one human being to another— and yet the relation involved is not that exactly of neighbor to neighbor, but rather of wards under persons bearing heaven's delegated trust and authority. So that, in the honoring of these, God himself receives somewhat of the homage due to him, and they who render it, as the apostle says, show piety at home. With the sixth command, however, the first of the second five, we are brought to what most distinctly relates to the human sphere and to the exercise of that love which may in the strictest sense be called love to one's neighbors. These the law enjoins us not to injure but to protect and cherish in regard to their life. 
Then, to what next to life should be dearest to them, the chastity and honor of wife or daughter, to their property, to their character and position in life. In respect to one and all of these, the imperative obligation imposed is that we do our neighbor no harm by the false testimony of our tongues, or the violence of our hands, or any course of procedure that is fitted to tell injuriously upon what he has and loves. And finally, to show that neither tongue, nor hands, nor any other member of our body, or any means and opportunities at our command, that not these alone are laid under contribution to this principle of love, but the seat also and fountain of all desire, all purpose and action. The Decalogue closes with the precept which forbids us to lust after or covet wife, house, possessions, anything whatever that is our neighbor's. A precept which reaches to the inmost thoughts and intents of the heart and requires that all, even there, should be under the control of a love which thinketh no evil, which abhors the very thought of adding to one's own heritage of good by wrongfully infringing on what is another's. Viewed thus as enshrining the great principle of love, and in a series of commands chalking out the courses of righteous action it was to follow, of unrighteous action it was to shun, the law of the two tables may justly be pronounced unique, so compact in form, so orderly in arrangement, so comprehensive in range, so free from everything narrow and punctilious, altogether the fitting reflex of the character of the supremely pure and good in his relation to the members of his earthly kingdom. It is emphatically a revelation of God, of God generally, indeed, as the moral governor of the world, but more peculiarly as the Redeemer of Israel. And to lower it to the position of a kind of semi-political and religious code were to deprive it of all that is most distinctive in its spirit and bearing, and render utterly inexplicable the singular prominence assigned it, not alone in the legislation of the Old Covenant, but in the Scriptures generally alike of the Old and the New. Number 2. Subordinate to this grand revelation of moral law, yet closely related to it, is what has usually been called the judicial law of the theocracy, though this is too limited a term for what must be comprised under it. A more fitting designation would be statutory directions and enactments for the practical ordering of affairs amid the complicated relations and often untoward events of life. The law, strictly so called, being the absolute expression of the divine will toward a people redeemed for the divine service and glory, was necessary oblivious of difficulties and defects. It peremptorily required conformity with its own perfect ideal of rectitude, and made no account of any deviation from this, except to warn against and condemn it. But in the circumstances in which mankind generally, and the Israelites in particular, actually stood, such conformity could never be more than partially realized. Transactions, interests, would be sure to come up, which might render it doubtful even to sincere men how to apply or how far to carry out the precepts of the Decalogue. 
And what was likely to be of much more frequent occurrence, wayward and selfish men would take occasion to traverse the pure and comely order which it was the design of those precepts to establish among the covenant people. In the event of such things arising, how was the external polity to be regulated and maintained? What modes of procedure and definite circumstances should be held in accordance with its spirit? What, as between one member of the community and another, might be tolerated, though falling somewhat below the divine code of requirements? What again, calling for excision, as too flagrantly opposed to it, to consist with the very being of the commonwealth? It was to provide some sort of answer to these questions that the statutory directions and enactments now under consideration were introduced. They are called, in the first mention that is made of them, the Mishpatim, the statutes or judgments, because bearing that character in relation to the Ten Commandments going immediately before. A series of particular cases is supposed, by way of example and illustration, of course, not as if exhausting the entire category of possible occurrences, and in connection with them, instructions are given as to what may or should be done so as to preserve the spirit of the Constitution and to restrain and regulate without unduly cramping the liberty of the people. Indeed, the range which is allowed through the whole class of provisions now in question for the exercise of individual liberty in official and even social arrangements is one of the most noticeable points connected with them. In civil and economical respects, the people were left in great measure to shape their domestic institutions and model their administrative polity as they thought fit. There were to be judges to determine in matters of dispute between man and man, and to maintain the fundamental laws of the kingdom. But how these judges were to be appointed, or what their relative places and spheres of jurisdiction, nothing is prescribed. A regular gradation of officers was introduced by Moses shortly before the giving of the law, but this was done at the suggestion of Jethro, as a merely prudential arrangement, and for anything that appears, was in that specific form confined to the wilderness sojourn. Neither the time nor the mode of its introduction brings it properly within the circle of legal appointments. Even when, at a later period, the supposition is made of the general government assuming a kingly form, it is spoken of as a thing to be left to the people's own choice, restricted only by such rules and limitations regarding the mode of election and the future conduct of the king as would render the appointment compatible with the theocratic constitution. And a similar reserve was maintained in respect to whatever did not come distinctly within the province of religion and morals. The people stood in regard to it much on the same platform as the other nations of the earth, and these we know were still in a comparatively imperfect state of order and civilization. Education and learning in the modern sense were unknown, the arts and conveniences of life and their infancy, 
the civil rights of the different classes of society little understood and usages of various kinds prevailing which partook of the rudeness of the times. It was in such a state of things that the kingdom of God, with its formal revelation of law, was set up in Israel. And while that revelation, in so far as it met with due consideration and was honestly applied, could not fail to operate with effect in elevating the tone and habits of society, even in the strictly temporal and earthly sphere, yet we must remember it only indirectly bore upon this and had to make its way amid much that was out of course and that could only admit of a gradual amelioration. Here, too, unless violence were to be done to the natural course of development, and a mechanical order made to supersede the free action of mind, the principle of progression must have had scope given it to work, and consequently, in the actual administration of the affairs of the kingdom, not always what was absolutely the best, but only the best practicable in the circumstances, was to be authoritatively enjoined. If only contemplated thus from a right point of view, the things sometimes accepted against in this part of the Mosaic legislation would be seen to admit of a just defense or reasonable explanation. First, but to take the points connected with it in order, a considerable portion of the statutes and judgments are, as we have said, a simple application of the great principles of the Decalogue to particular cases intended at once to explain and confirm them. That, in its general spirit and tenor, the Decalogue is an embodiment of love. In its second part of brotherly love, extending through the entire circle of one's thoughts, words, and deeds, might be conceded. But must it be exercised in every case? Even toward one from whom injury has been received? If we think he has acted to us unjustly, may not we in turn take our revenge? No. The judicial reply is, a neighbor, though an enemy, in trouble, as when his ass or his ox strays, or his ass has fallen helplessly under a burden, ought to receive our help. So that the action of love enjoined in the command must not be thought to depend on the mere accidents of one's position— and in the most untoward circumstances, in respect even to an enemy, must show itself in the positive as well as the negative form. Revenge is strictly excluded, and love to every brother or neighbor enforced. Nor in words merely, but also in giving to him, in his time of need without usury, and imitating toward him the divine beneficence. Other statutes in the same line cut off the excuse which some might be ready to offer that the injury sustained by their neighbor had been done by a mere act of inadvertence or rashness on their part, as by kindling a fire which spread into another's vineyard, or by keeping open a pit into which his ox fell. Done, perhaps, in a sudden outburst of passion, or through the vicious propensities of their cattle, For such things also men were held responsible, because failing to do within their proper domain the kind and considerate part of love to those around them. 
But then it was possible some might be disposed occasionally to press the matter too far and hold a man equally responsible for any violence done by him to the life or property of another, whether done from sheer carelessness, from heedless impetuosity, or from deliberate malice. Here, again, the statutory enactments come in with their wise and discriminating judgments, distinguishing, for example, between death inflicted unwittingly or in self-defense, or in the attempt to arrest a burglary and murder perpetrated in cold blood. Thus there is delivered to us, for a principle of interpretation and personal guidance, that the law under any particular head is violated or fulfilled, not by the bare act anyhow performed, but by the act taken in connection with the circumstances, especially the feeling and intent of the heart under which it has been done. Once more, the question might be stirred by some in a perverse, by others in a partial or prejudiced spirit, whether the law should be understood as applying to all with absolute equality. Whether an exemption more or less might not be allowed, at least to persons in what might be called the extremes of social position. Here also, the decision is given with sufficient plainness when it is ordained that the poor man was neither to have his judgment rested, nor be unduly countenanced in his cause from respect to his poverty, that even the friendless stranger was to be treated with kindness and equity, and that the rich and powerful were not to be allowed to use their resources for the purpose of gaining an advantage to which they were not entitled. Second, it thus appears that the class of enactments referred to have an abiding value, as they serve materially to throw light on the import and bearing of the Decalogue, confirming the views already given of its spiritual and comprehensive character. Another class, which, like the preceding, involve no difficulty of interpretation, also reflect, in a somewhat different way, a measure of light on the Decalogue, that is, by the judicial treatment they award to the more flagrant violation of its precepts. The deeds which were of this description had all the penalty of death attached to them, showing that the precepts they violated were of a fundamental character and entered as essential principles into the constitution of the theocracy. Such was the doom suspended over the introduction of false gods in violation of the first command, to which also belong all the statutes about witchcraft, divination, and necromancing, which involved the paying of homage to another object of worship than Jehovah. Over the worshipping of God by idols in violation of the second command, over the profanation of God's name in violation of the third, over the deliberate profanation of the Sabbath in violation of the fourth, over shameful dishonor and violence done to parents in violation of the fifth, over murder, adultery, bestiality, men-stealing, and the more extreme cases of oppression, violence, and false witness-bearing, in violation of the successive commands of the second table. Why the breaches of these great precepts of the Decalogue should have been met so uniformly with the severity of capital punishment is to be accounted for by the nature of the kingdom set up in Israel, which was a theocracy, having God for its supreme lawgiver and head, 
and for its subjects a people bearing his name and occupying his land. How completely would the great end of such an institution have been frustrated if the holiness to which the people were called had been outraged and the sins which ran counter to it openly practiced? To act thus had been to traverse the fundamental laws of the kingdom, nay, to manifest an unmistakable hatred to its divine head and could no more be tolerated there than overt treason in an earthly government. The law, therefore, righteously laid the sin of deliberate transgression on the head of the sinner as guilt, which could only be taken away by the punishment of him who committed it. If this should be deemed excessive severity, it can only be because the right is virtually denied on the part of God to establish a theocracy among men in conformity with his own revealed character and for the manifestation of his name. That right, however, is assumed as the ground on which the whole legislation of Sinai proceeds, and if the penal enactments of the theocracy are to be rightly interpreted, they must be placed in immediate connection with the authority and honor of God. In respect to all judicial action, when properly administered, the judgment, though administered by man, was held to be the Lord's. To bring a matter up for judgment was represented as bringing it to God. So the rendering should be in Exodus 22, 8, and 9, not the judges, as in the English version. And persons standing before the priests and the judges to have sentence pronounced upon them were said to stand before the Lord. If the judges and the judged realized this to be their position, would there have been any just ground to complain of undue severity? Would there not rather have been diffused throughout the community a deep sense of the divine righteousness and an earnest striving to have its claims and penalties enforced as the indispensable prerequisite of peace and blessing? Besides, it was not they alone who were to be considered. For in planting them in Canaan, in the midst of the nations, and furnishing them with such a polity, God's design was to use them as a great teaching institute, a light placed aloft on the moral heights of the world amid surrounding darkness. What incalculable blessings might have accrued to ancient heathendom had that high calling been fulfilled? But to this end, the stern proscription of open ungodliness and flagrant immoralities was indispensable. Third, another class of the statutes and judgments under consideration is one which more directly bore on the imperfect state of order and civilization than everywhere existing, and which has often been misunderstood and objected to. The law of compensation frequently, though improperly termed the law of retaliation, does not strictly belong to the class, but may be included in it on account of the assaults to which it has been subjected. It is indeed so far of the class in question as it comes first directly into view in connection with a very rude and barbarous state of manners. The supposition is made of two men striving together, and a woman with child, whether by chance or from well-meant interference on her part, happening to receive some corporeal injury in the fray, 
and it was ordained that her husband was entitled to claim compensation from the offender according to the extent of the injury. Proceeding further, the statute provides generally for all like cases that there should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Stripped of its concrete form, this is simply a rule for the proper administration of justice between man and man, requiring that when a particular wrong was done to anyone, and through him to society, an adequate compensation should be rendered. So far from being peculiar to the Mosaic Code, no legislation that is not capricious and arbitrary can dispense with such a rule, nor could society exist in peace and comfort without its faithful application. Quote, in fact, to use the words of Kalish in his commentary on the passage, our own Christian legislation could not dispense with similar principles. Life is punished with life, and intentional injuries are visited with more than equivalent penalties. Not even the most sentimental and romantic legislator has ever had the fancy to pardon all criminals out of Christian love. For, in reality, every simple law in our criminal code is based on the jus talionis, the law of compensation, with the limitation that bodily mutilation is converted into an adequate pecuniary fine or incarceration. But the same modification, he adds, has been universally adopted by traditional Judaism. End quote. Such a limitation was in perfect accordance with the general spirit of the Mosaic Code and must have been from the first intended. The literal application of the rule, as in the case of burning for burning or wound for wound, would often have been impracticable. For who could have undertaken to make a second that should always be precisely equivalent to the first? Or unjust, for the severity of a bodily infliction may, in particular circumstances, be a widely different thing to one person from what it is to another. To insist on the exact counterpart of such corporeal injuries, even when it could have been secured, in preference to a reasonable compensation, would plainly have been to gratify a spirit of revenge. And this, as already stated, was expressly disallowed. There was one thing, and only one, in regard to which compensation was formally interdicted. The life of a deliberate murderer must be given for the life of the murdered, without satisfaction, without pity. And the emphatic exclusion of compensation here was justly regarded by the Jewish doctors as virtually sanctioning its admission in cases of a lighter kind, where no such exclusion was mentioned. The real bearing of this law, then, when rightly understood and applied as it was meant in judicial decisions, was in perfect accordance with the principles of equity. It was merely a practical embodiment of these, and the reference made to it by our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount, where it forms a kind of contrast to the injunction laid on his followers not to resist evil, but when smitten on the one cheek to turn the other also, and so on, can imply no disparagement of the old rule in its proper intention. Insofar as it breathed a tone of censure, or assumed a position of antagonism, it was only in regard to those 
who, in their personal endeavors after the pure and good, had not known to rise above the level of a formal and rigid justice. Not questioning the claims of justice and the public administration of affairs, our Lord still made it to be known that he sought a people who would be ready to forego these, whenever by doing so they could promote the good of their fellow men. But the law of brotherly love, when requiring the suppression of revenge and the exercise of forbearance and kindness even to an enemy, in reality did the same, as was perfectly understood by the better spirits of the old covenant. So that nothing properly different, but only a greater fullness and prominence in the exhibition or enforcement of such love, can be claimed for the gospel dispensation. Fourth, more distinctly than the statutes just noticed, may some of those connected with the punishment of murder be ranked in the class now under consideration. In this branch of the Mosaic legislation, there is generally apparent a spirit of humanity and moderation. First of all, murder in the proper sense is carefully discriminated from death brought about in some casual manner. In every case of real murder, it was necessary to prove preceding malice or hatred, a lying in wait or taking deliberate measures to compass the death of its victim, and an assault with some violent weapon accomplishing the end in view. But if, on the other hand, while a man had proved the cause of a neighbor's death, the act inflicting it was merely the throwing of a stone or other weight, which incidentally lighted upon some one, and took away his life, or if by some sort of sudden thrust in a freak or fury, without aught of preconceived malice or deliberate intent, a neighbor's life was sacrificed, the instrument of doing it could not be arraigned for murder, but neither could he be deemed altogether innocent." There must usually have been, in such cases, at least a culpable degree of heedlessness, which would always call for careful investigation, and might justly subject the individual to a limited amount of trouble, or even of punishment. It does so still in the civilized communities of modern times, with their regulated forms of judicial procedure and vigilant police. The manslayer, however unwittingly he may have been the occasion of taking another's life, must lay his account to the solemn inquest, often also the personal arrest, and it may be ultimately the severe reprimand, pecuniary fine, or temporary imprisonment, which may be thought due as a correction to his improper heedlessness or haste. But at the period of Israel's settlement in Canaan, there were not the opportunities for calm inquiry and patient, satisfactory adjustment of such cases as exist now. And there were, besides, feelings deeply rooted in Asiatic society and usages growing out of them, which tended very considerably to embarrass the matter and yet could not be arbitrarily set aside. These arose out of the relation of Goel, according to which the nearest of kin had the wrongs, in particular circumstances, as well as the rights of the deceased devolved upon him. 
especially the obligation to avenge his blood in the event of its having been unrighteously shed. On this account, the term goel is very commonly reckoned synonymous with avenger, goel chadam, avenger of blood. And in the passages bearing on this subject, they are invariably so rendered in our English Bible. To the mere English reader, however, in modern times, this is apt to convey a somewhat wrong idea, for in the proper import, Goel means not avenger, but redeemer, as in Job 19.25, I know that my redeemer liveth, and Goel Chadam is strictly redeemer of blood, one to whom belonged the right and duty of recovering the blood of the murdered kinsman of vindicating, in the only way practicable, its wronged cause and obtaining for it justice. In him the blood of the dead, as it were, rose to life again and claimed its due. In other cases it fell to the goel to redeem the property of his relative, which had become alienated and lost by debt. To redeem his person from bondage, if through poverty he had been necessitated to go into servitude, even to redeem his family, when by dying childless it was like to become extinct in Israel, by marrying his widow and raising up a seed to him. It thus appears that a humane and brotherly feeling lay at the root of this Goel relationship, and in regard to the matter more immediately before us, it did not necessarily involve anything revengeful or capricious in its mode of operation. In ordinary cases, all its demands might have been satisfied by the Goel appearing before the judges as the prosecutor of the manslayer and calling upon them to examine the case and give judgment in behalf of the deceased. But there can be no doubt that it might also quite readily run to evil, that it might degenerate, if not very carefully guarded and checked, into what, from time immemorial, it has been among the Arab races, a kind of wild and vengeful spirit of justice which would take the law into its own hands, and, in defiance alike of personal danger and of the forms of legal procedure, would pursue the shedder of blood till his blood in turn had been shed. This was the vicious extreme of the system, Yet one, it ought to be remembered, which operated as a powerful check, perhaps in the circumstances of the place and times the only valid check that could be devised against another and still more pernicious extreme, for which peculiar facilities were afforded by the vast deserts of Arabia and the regions lying around Palestine. How easy might it have been for the daring and successful murderer by making his escape into these, to get beyond the reach of the regular tribunals and officers of justice. Only the dread of being tracked out and having his own measure summarily meted back to him, by one on whom the charge to avenge the wrong lay as a primary and lifelong obligation, might be sufficient to deter him from trusting in such a refuge from evil. We have it on the testimony of those who have been most thoroughly conversant with the regions in question, and the races inhabiting them, that nothing has contributed so much as this institution, even in its most objectionable Arab form, 
to prevent the warlike tribes of the East from exterminating one another. In these circumstances, Moses, legislating for a people already familiar with the Goel relationship, and going to occupy a region which presented to the more lawless spirits of the community, tempting opportunities for escaping from judicial treatment of a more orderly kind, took the wise course of grounding his statutes in respect to manslaughter and murder on the hereditary rights and duties of the Goel. But he so restrained and regulated them that if faithfully carried out, the checks he introduced could scarcely fail to arrest the worst tendencies of the system and indeed reduce the position of the Goel to that of the recognized and rightful prosecutor of the Shedder of Blood. To prevent any sudden assault upon the latter, and afford time for the due investigation of his deed, a temporary asylum was provided for him in the cities of refuge, which were appointed for this purpose at convenient distances, three on the one side and three on the other of the Jordan. When actually appointed, the cities were most wisely distributed, and belonged also to the class of Levitical cities— Golan and Bashan, Ramoth and Gilead and Bezer on the east side, Kadesh and Galilee, Shechem and Hebron on the west. And as such were sure to contain persons skilled in the knowledge of the law and capable of giving intelligent judgment. Arrived within the gates of one of these cities, the manslayer was safe from the premature action of the Goel, but only that the judges and elders of the place might take up the case and pronounce impartial judgment upon it. If they found reason to acquit him of actual murder, then he remained under their protection, but was obliged to submit to a kind of partial imprisonment, because not allowed to go beyond the borders of the city till the death of the existing high priest, after which, if he still lived, he was at liberty to return to his own possession." Were not these conditions, however, somewhat arbitrary? If not really guilty of blood in the proper sense, why should he not have been placed at once under the protection of the law and restored to his property and home? And why should the period of his release have been made to hang on the uncertain and variable moment of the high priest's death? Perhaps there may have been grounds for these limitations at the time they were imposed, which cannot now be ascertained, but a little consideration is sufficient to show that they could not be deemed unreasonable. In the great majority of cases, the death of the person slain must have been owing to the want of due circumspection, forethought, or restraint on the part of him who had occasioned it, and it could not, to thoughtful minds, appear otherwise than a salutary discipline that he should be adjudged to a temporary abridgment of his liberty. Arbitrarily, to break through this restraint after it had been judicially imposed would clearly have argued a self-willed, impetuous, and troublesome humor which refused correction and might readily enough repeat in the future the rashness or misdeed of the past— so that it was but dealing with him according to his folly to leave him in such a case at the mercy of the Goel. 
Nor could the connection of the period of release with the death of the existing high priest carry much of a strange or capricious aspect to the members of the theocracy. For the high priest was, in everything pertaining to sin and forgiveness, the most prominent person in the community. In such things, he was the representative of the people, making perpetual intercession for them before God. And though there was nothing expiatory in his death, yet, being the death of one in whom the expiatory ritual of the old covenant had so long found its center and culmination, it was natural, more than natural, it was every way proper and becoming, that when he disappeared from among men, the cause of the blood that had been incidentally shed in his lifetime and from its nature could admit of no very definite reckoning, should be held to have passed with him into oblivion. Its cry was to be no more heard. It was made very clear, however, by other statutes on this subject, that when actual murder had been committed, no advantage was to accrue to the perpetrator from the cities of refuge. Though he might have fled thither, he was on the proof of his guilt to be delivered up to the Goel for summary execution. Nor was the altar of God, a still more sacred place than the cities of refuge, and in ancient times almost universally regarded as an asylum for criminals, to be permitted in such cases to afford protection. From this also the murderer was to be dragged to his deserved doom. In short, deliberate murder was to admit of no compromise and no palliation. The original law Whoso sheddest man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, must be rigorously enforced. And doubtless, mainly also on the original ground, because in the image of God made he him. To disregard the sanctity of human life, and tread it vilely in the dust, was like aiming a thrust at God himself, disparaging his noblest work in creation, and the one that stood in peculiar relationship to his own spiritual being. Therefore, the violation of the sixth command by deliberate murder involved also a kind of secondary violation of the first, and to suffer the blood of the innocent to lie unavenged was, in the highest sense, to pollute the land. It was to render it unworthy of the name of God's inheritance— so great was the horror entertained of this unnatural crime, and so anxious was the lawgiver to impress men with the feeling of its contrariety to the whole spirit and object of the law, that, even in the case of an uncertain murder, there was a cry of blood which could not be disregarded. And when every effort had failed to discover the author of the deed, the elders of the city which lay nearest to the corpse were to regard themselves as in a manner implicated. They had to come publicly forward, and not only protest their innocence of the crime, and their ignorance of the manner in which it had been committed, but also to go through a process of purification by blood and water, that the charge of blood guiltiness might not rest upon them and their land. Fifth. We pass on now to the statutes on slavery and the treatment of those subject to it, 
which have in various respects been deemed inconsistent with the spirit of the Decalogue, as embodying the law of brotherly love. Here, again, it is especially necessary to bear in mind the state of the world at the time the law was given, and the relation in which it stood to manners and usages, which bespoke a very imperfect development both of economical science and of civil rights. It was necessary that the law should take things as it found them, and while setting before the covenant people the correct idea of all that was morally right and good should still regulate what pertained to the enforcement of discipline with a due regard to circumstances more or less anomalous and perplexing. By constitutional right, all the members of the covenant were free. They were the Lord's redeemed ones, whom he vindicated to himself from the house of bondage, that they might be in a condition to serve and honor him. They were not again to be sold as bondmen, and that they might remain in this freedom from human servitude, every one had an inheritance assigned sufficient for the maintenance of himself and his family. The precautions, too, which were taken to secure the perpetuity of these family possessions were admirably devised. If properly guarded and carried out, nothing had been wanting to provide, so far as external arrangements could affect it, the means of a comfortable livelihood and independence for the families of Israel. But much must still depend on the individual character of the people and the current of events in their history. If, through adverse circumstances, desolation fell on any portion of the territory, or if, from slothful neglect, particular inheritances were not duly cultivated, or the resources they furnished were again improvidently squandered, above all, if the people in whole or in part should become involved in the reverses or triumphs of war, such inequalities might readily spring up as, in the existing state of civic life and political arrangements, would most naturally lead to the introduction of a certain kind of slavery. It is even possible that, as matters then stood, the humanest, if not the only practicable thing that could be done by legislative enactment, was to bound and regulate, rather than absolutely interdict, some modified form of this, in itself, unhappy relationship. Such, at least, appears to have been the view countenanced by the divine head of the theocracy. For the statutes bearing on the subject of slavery are entirely of the kind just indicated, and, when temperately considered, will be found to involve a wise adaptation to the circumstances of the time. Even a brief outline may be enough to establish this. First, the language alone is of importance here as indicative of the spirit of the Hebrew theocracy. It had no term to designate one class as slaves, in the stricter sense, and another who did hired service. The term for both alike is eved, properly, a laborer or worker, and hence, very naturally, one whose calling in life is emphatically of this description, a servant. And, as justly noted by Salschutz, 
Quote, among a people who were engaged in agricultural employments, whose lawgiver Moses and whose king Saul and David were taken straight from the flock and the plow to their high calling, there could not seem to be anything degrading in a designation derived from work. And the name of honor applied to Moses and other righteous men was that of servant of God. The only ground for concern could be, lest occasion might be taken to render work galling and oppressive, or incidentally subversive of the great principles of the Constitution. Second, as a check upon this, at the outset, a brand was set upon man-stealing. He who should be found to have kidnapped a soul, meaning thereby man or woman, of the children of Israel, for the purpose of using or selling that soul as a slave, incurred the penalty of death as a violator of the fundamental laws of the kingdom. Third, but a man might, under the constraint of circumstances, to save himself and his family from the extremities of want, become fain to part with his freedom and bind himself in servitude to another. In such cases, which should never have been but of an exceptional kind, a whole series of prescriptions were given to set bounds to the evil and secure, during its continuance, the essentials of a brotherly relationship. The service required was in no case to be that of an absolute bondman, or as the expression literally is, service of a servant, avodat eved. Rigorous service, such as might be expected of one into whose condition no higher element entered. His relation to Jehovah as the Redeemer of Israel must not be allowed to fall into abeyance. Hence, his general rights and privileges as a member of the covenant remained untouched. He could inherit property if it accrued to him, could be redeemed by a kinsman at a fair ransom, was entitled to the rest of the weekly Sabbath and to the joy and consolation of the stated festivals. Besides, the period of service was limited. It could not extend beyond six years, after which, in the seventh, came the year of release. And even then, the master was not to let him go empty, but was to furnish him with supplies to help him toward an independent position. Exodus 21, verse 2, Deuteronomy 15, 12-14. So that the relation of a Hebrew bondman to his master did not materially differ from that of one now, who sells his labor to a particular person, or engages to work to him on definite terms for a stated period. A certain exception, no doubt, has to be made in respect to the provision concerning his wife and children. If the wife belonged to him when he entered into the bond service, then both wife and children went out with him. But if the wife had been given him by the master, wife and children could be claimed by the master. In the latter case, of course, the servant would be at perfect liberty to refuse what was offered, and as it must have been a person of heathen birth that, in the case supposed, was offered him for wife, for Hebrew maidservants were, equally with the men, entitled to release in the seventh year, the proper Israelite could not have complied with it, unless the woman had ceased in spirit to be a heathen, and he had himself made up his mind to abide in perpetual servitude to his master. The laws respecting marriage involved these two conditions— as in a moral respect binding upon the individual in question. 
for temporary marriages and marriages with unconverted heathens were alike forbidden. A man might, however, choose to remain in the position of a bondman rather than avail himself of his right to become free. The supposition of such a case is distinctly made, and it was ordered that he should go through what could not but be regarded as a degrading ceremony. On declaring that he loved his master, his wife, and children, and that he would not go out free, his master was to place him before the judges, and in their presence, bore his ear through with an awl into the door or doorpost. The perforating of the ear and fixing it with the awl to the door, as appears from the passage in Deuteronomy to have been the full rite, was undoubtedly intended to signify the servant's personal surrender of the freedom proper to him as an Israelite, that he might attach himself to the authority and interest of the master. By the door, therefore, is most naturally understood the door of the master's house, in which the man and his family now became a kind of fixtures. But whether the forever connected with his obligation of servitude indicated a strictly lifelong continuance or an unbroken service only till the year of Jubilee is differently understood and cannot be quite definitely determined, though the natural impression is in favor of the former view. The whole object and bearing of the ceremony were obviously to fix a sort of stigma on anyone who voluntarily assumed the condition of such prolonged servitude. His claim, however, to lenient treatment and the usual Israelitish privileges remained as before. Fourth, a still further supposition is made that, namely, of the daughter of an Israelite, not going into ordinary servitude for the legal term of years, as in Deuteronomy 15.12, in which case the regulations laid down for male servants were in substance applicable here, but being sold, according to the prevailing custom in the East, with a double view of service and betrothal. She was, in the circumstances, supposed to go as a maidservant, namely, to engage activity in domestic work, and at the same time she is represented as standing in a betrothed condition to her master. If he was satisfied with her, and either himself took her to wife, or gave her to his son in that capacity, then she, of course, became a member of the family and had the rights of a spouse. But if the connection, after being formed, was again broken off, then, besides all the moral blame that might be incurred in the matter— of which this branch of the law does not treat, the master was obliged to forfeit the money he had paid. The maid could not be resold, but was instantly to regain her liberty, though it may be doubtful if she had the right to sue for a regular divorce. This part of the question, however, belongs rather to the subject of marriage than to that of servitude. Fifth, Servitude, in a stricter sense than that which the preceding regulations contemplate, might be exacted of foreigners. Of the heathen that were round about them, the Israelites might buy persons for bondmen and bondmaids, also of the strangers who might be sojourning among them. Then, those who were taken captive in war, as a matter of course, fell into the hands of the victors and were reduced to the condition of bondmen. 
The children also, if any should be born to either of the preceding classes, formed a third source of supply. But from the very constitution of the kingdom, which secured a general distribution of the land along with the rights of citizenship, and rendered next to impossible large accumulations of property or fields of enterprise that would call for much servile labor, there was comparatively little scope or occasion for the growth of this kind of population. The circumstances of the covenant people presented no temptation to it. Beyond very moderate limits, the presence of such a population must have been a source of trouble and annoyance, rather than of comfort or strength. And hence, in the historical records, no indication exists of any regular commerce being carried on in this line, or even of any considerable numbers being held in the condition of bondmen. The Phoenician slave trade is noticed only in connection with what Israel suffered by it, not for anything they gained. And so little sympathy were they to have with the slave system practiced among the nations around them, that a slave flying to them for refuge from his heathen master was not to be delivered up, but to be allowed, under Israelitish protection, to fix his abode in whatever city he himself might choose. The strangers or foreigners sometimes mentioned, and especially in the times of David and Solomon, as ready for the execution of servile work, seem rather to have been a kind of serfs than slaves in the ordinary sense, chiefly the descendants, in all probability, of the heathen families that remained in the land. Of that class certainly were the Gibeonites, only with a special destination as to the form of service they were taken bound to render. From the facts just stated, one is naturally led to infer that bond service in the strict sense must have been of very limited extent among the covenant people, and that, in so far as it did exist, it must have ever tended to work towards its own extinction. This also is the impression which the particular statutes on the subject are fitted to convey. As a rule, the persons belonging to the house as bondmen or bondmaids were to be treated as members of the family. They were to enjoy the Sabbath rest and partake of the sacrificial meals, even if the priest should have any servants in that position, they were to eat of the consecrated food which fell to the share of the master. When they submitted to the rite of circumcision, which, according to rabbinical tradition, and indeed to the obvious proprieties of things, required their own deliberate consent, as they thereby entered into the bond of the covenant, so they became entitled to eat of the Passover, and, of course, to participate fully in all the privileges of the covenant. If the master should smite any of his bondmen with a murderous weapon so as to cause his death, he was himself liable to the penalty of murder. For smiting to death with intent to kill is, without exception, in the case of the stranger, as well as the native Israelite, placed under one condemnation. Smiting only to the effect of destroying a tooth or an eye was to be followed with the freedom of the slave. But when smiting of that description, smiting, namely, with a rod in the way of chastisement with no intent to kill, went so far as to produce death, it was to be met by deserved punishment. The atrocity was to be avenged.
though it is not said by what particular infliction, Exodus 21.20. The penalty was apparently left to the discretion of the judges and would doubtless vary according to the circumstances. But if death did not immediately follow, if the servant lingered a day or two, no additional penalty was to be imposed. The delay was to be taken as proof that no fatal result was contemplated by the master, and in a pecuniary respect, the death of the victim had itself inflicted a heavy mulct. Not that, in a moral point of view, this was an adequate compensation for the undue severity he had practiced, but that the temporal loss of having equaled the recognized value of the subject, it was deemed inexpedient to go farther in that direction. For the higher bearing of his procedure, he had still to place himself in contact with the revelations respecting sin and atonement. Taken as a whole, the statutes upon the subject of slavery, it is impossible to deny, are largely pervaded by a spirit of mildness and equity. Tolerating, rather than properly countenancing and approving of it, and giving to it a very different character— both as to extent and manner of working, from what belonged to it in the nations of heathen antiquity. If brought into comparison, indeed, with the arrangements of modern civilization, one can readily point to features in it which, considered by themselves, were not in accordance with the ideal of a well-ordered commonwealth. But such a comparison would be essentially unfair, for, However high the standard of moral rectitude set up in the Hebrew commonwealth and in its entireness laid upon the consciences of the people, the commonwealth and its political administration could not move in total isolation from the state of things around it. At various points it necessarily took a certain impress from the age and time, and from the universal prevalence of slavery among their heathen neighbors it must often have been impracticable for the people— when seeking the service they needed, to obtain it otherwise than in the form of bond service. But as the persons acquired for the purpose must usually have been brought from heathen districts, they could not possibly be placed on a footing with the proper subjects of the theocracy. Even, however, as strangers in a depressed condition, they were to be treated in a kind and considerate manner, as by those who, in their own persons or through their ancestors, had known the heart and experience of a stranger. And all proper facilities were besides afforded them, and reasonable encouragements held out, to their entering into the bond of the covenant, and merging their condition and prospects with those of the covenant people. If, after all, things were often not ordered as they should have been, who that calmly considers the actual position of affairs would venture to affirm that it could have been made better by any statutory regulations given for authoritative enforcement? These must limit themselves to the practically attainable. If they were not to produce other, and perhaps greater, evils than those they were intended to prevent. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.